Welcome to Visiting Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. For this series, we ask medical oncologists in practice to set up a special day-long education clinic of patients with breast cancer and arrange for a breast cancer clinical investigator to make rounds on these patients with the community-based practitioner. After the physicians meet with the patients, I then chat with them about what happened. For our first series of patients, Dr. Stephen Papish of Morristown, New Jersey, presents patients to Dr. Antonio Wolf, beginning with a young woman who presented two years ago with ER-positive, HER2-positive inflammatory breast cancer. This is currently a 38-year-old white female presented in 2007 with left breast swelling over approximately a two-month period of time and ultimately was found to have a 9-centimeter mass in the breast with potorange changes, erythema, and a palpable left axillary lymph node. A breast biopsy confirmed a moderate to poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma with focal lymphovascular invasion. The clinical picture was definitely inflammatory breast cancer, but the skin biopsy actually, there was no skin, so we didn't have dermal lymphatic invasion, but it was clinically inflammatory. The tumor was strongly ER-positive, PR-negative, and HER2 was 3-plus by IHC and ultimately amplified by FISH with an amplification of 7.8. What was her state of mind at that point? As I think Dr. Wolf and I will both tell you, the patient is extraordinarily together in this. She's just ready to move on, ready to do whatever was needed. Her husband was in tears, and it remains such is difficult for him, actually, to deal with this problem, but she was totally motivated and ready to do anything we said needed to be done. She has children? One child who's now 10 years old. Antonio, what do you think about the presentation and what would you normally be thinking at that point? The biggest concern, obviously, is the fact that she's presenting with inflammatory breast cancer and the likelihood of, number one, having metastatic disease at presentation and all the implications. And in this case, it was particularly interesting to see how much affected her husband was and still is. He was actually quite emotional today during the visit with Steve. So on one end, the bad news that she was dealing with a very high-risk tumor, an inflammatory presentation. On the other hand, to a degree, the potential good news that she was presenting with a HER2-positive tumor. So the consideration for an anti-HER2 therapy, which hopefully could change the natural history of her disease. So what happened, Steve? She underwent a staging workup, and the only abnormality was what appeared to be a dermoid ovarian cyst, a benign cyst with no other abnormalities, normal tumor markers at presentation. And she was begun on therapy with a TCH regimen with taxotere carboplatinum and Herceptin. The Herceptin was given weekly during the treatment and the taxotere carboplatinum at three-week intervals. Six cycles were completed at the end of September of 2007, at which point, shortly after that, she was actually begun on tamoxifen and then underwent uh, bilateral mastectomies in November 2007 with immediate reconstruction with tissue expanders and alloderm slings. What was seen at surgery in terms of residual tumor? The prophylactic breast had fibrocystic disease with no evidence of malignancy. The affected left breast showed single cells in random sections throughout virtually all four quadrants of the breast but no mass lesion was noted at all, just single cells. There was some lymphovascular invasion and, again, single cells in few areas, 
and three of 10 lymph nodes showed tiny clusters of metastatic tumor, predominantly in the capsular and lymphatic spaces. Now, did she have a family history of breast cancer, and what about working her up genetically? Correct. At her age, clearly that was one of our thoughts. She did not have a family history. She had a postmenopausal relative with breast cancer, and she underwent BRCA1 and 2 testing, which were negative. There was also, interestingly, a family history of endometrial cancer in her mother in her 40s, and there was one relative with colon carcinoma, so the possibility of an HNPCC genetic abnormality was also raised, although that testing was actually not done. Now, what happened in terms of her menses? She did have chemotherapy-induced amenorrhea, but then did begin to menstruate. Several months later, she was menstruating normally, probably about six months after that. How's she doing on the tamoxifen? She was tolerating the tamoxifen very well. One of the issues that came up was this abnormality, which looked like a benign cystic teratoma. And she had been followed by her gynecologist and had several pelvic ultrasounds. And we did discuss on multiple occasions doing either a unilateral oophorectomy or bilateral salpingo-ophorectomy with a consideration of inducing uh, permanent menopause since she was, again, premenopausal at that time. And we even discussed the possibility of a prophylactic hysterectomy given this family history of endometrial cancer. She elected to undergo bilateral salpingo-ophorectomy, which was performed a few months prior to this visit. And so she's now actually postmenopausal, still on tamoxifen, however, and has some vasomotor symptoms, but is tolerating it fairly well. There are a few things I wanted to ask you about, Antonio, relevant to the case. First is the neoadjuvant therapy. Now, this is a young woman. Would there have been any consideration for using a Buzzdar-type regimen that includes an anthracycline? There was another report maybe that you could comment on at San Antonio in another trial, the NOAA study, looking at that kind of approach. What do you think about that, and is that something that could have been considered for her? I think very much so. Perhaps the most important decision in her case was actually the initiation of an anti-HER2 regimen in the preoperative setting. In this case today, the standards would be using trastuzumab as the other agents are not yet approved in the adjuvant setting. And I think it became, for the most part, a personal choice. Steve, and he may comment on his decision-making process of his choice of using TCH instead of using other regimens such as the Buzzdar regimen with concomitant epirubicin and the trastuzumab or even the intergroup NCCTG regimen of AC followed by paclitaxel and trastuzumab. So I don't think that at this point there is one regimen that would be considered the best regimen. And we often in our group at Hopkins, we often use the AC followed by paclitaxel trastuzumab. So I'm actually curious, I could ask Steve for his thoughts on why he decided to use one versus the other. Right. I've certainly used both. I did not feel comfortable actually using the Buzzdar regimen in a young patient, even though this was obviously a very locally advanced disease. And I realized that the cardiotoxicity in the Buzzdar regimen appears to be safe, but I still didn't feel a level of comfort and had never used that regimen. And so off a clinical trial, I would have been uncomfortable. I really had a pretty extensive experience with both TCH and previously with the intergroup regimen. In fact, we had participated in the clinical trial with the intergroup trial. But I had come to be using the TCH regimen more frequently 
when the data came out. Again, this is a young woman, unlikely to have significant cardiotoxicity, but I did feel comfortable enough in that situation to treat her with TCH. But I could easily, you know, I don't think there's a right or wrong in that situation. And, and I think that's the key message yeah. because we see so many discussions about one potentially being superior than the other. And that may indeed be the case. But I think the key issue here is the use of the anti hertu therapy. Now, another issue with this woman that there's a lot of controversy about is the choice of endocrine therapy, and particularly in a woman who's had her ovaries removed. This is not completely rare to see something like this happen. And of course, she's on tamoxifen, but you also have the option of an AI. Again, Antonia, what do you think about that? Yeah, we actually were having a little bit of this conversation. And so, Steve, you started for on tamoxifen, but you're trying to decide if you're going to make a switch to an aromatase inhibitor. And I think my sense is that you want to do it. My original plan was to do it, but to give her probably at least another six months on the tamoxifen to sort of ease into menopausal symptoms. I think the jury's out in terms of ovarian ablation with tamoxifen versus an AI. We have the one study with too few patients at this point to make that kind of statement, and yet it did not appear to be a significant difference. Remember, this is the woman that has the family history of endometrial cancer, too, at a young age. So I think I still believe that the AI may be a better therapy. I don't feel strongly that she needs to be on the AI today, but I'd like to move toward it, and I've sort of set a point of around six months. Speaking to that point, today, and this is certainly controversial because Antonia and I were discussing it, we did testing for CYP2D6 polymorphisms because I felt that if I'm committing her to tamoxifen in a high-risk ER-positive patient, that I would certainly like to make sure that she's not in the 9 or 10% of patients that may be slow metabolizers of tamoxifen. And my thinking as we were discussing this patient earlier today was the most important thing is that she is on endocrine therapy. And she already has had a major endocrine intervention, which is ovarian ablation, and she has a second going on, which is tamoxifen. So the big question is, what is the additional benefit from the use of an aromatase inhibitor now versus tamoxifen. And chances are, it may be there, but chances are it's going to be small. The recent publication in the New England of the Austrian Breast Cancer Study Group, Trial 12, did not show the benefit between the aromatase inhibitor and the tamoxifen arms in a setting where all women receive ovarian suppression. But at the same time, the study may have been underpowered to show a small difference between AIs and the CERM. But I think it's legitimate to consider using an AI. But then at the same time, you need to think about all the issues related to bone health And the other issue that Steve has already taken care of, which is now that she is at a significant risk for developing osteopenia, osteoporosis, in addition to making sure her vitamin D levels are okay, one could argue that on the basis of Z-Fast, Zofast data, she should be started on a bisphosphonate. And actually, Steve has done it with that primarily a bone health objective, but I'm sure secondarily hoping that there might be an anti-cancer effect as well. So, Steve, are you using the Austrian every six-month approach? Yes, well, I haven't started it, so I didn't do everything all at once in this young woman, but close. I did get a bone density, actually, and she has a little osteopenia in the spine to begin with, and that was just done in the last few months. And this, of course, could be because she did have chemotherapy-induced amenorrhea for a period of time, but clearly she's starting with a little osteopenia. So our plan is when I see her in three months, that we're going to start a bisphosphonate at the six-month period using zolindronic acid 
at six-month intervals. Just out of curiosity, do you send your patients to dentists before they get a bisphosphonate? I discuss oral health. I talk to them about my biggest concerns in limiting extractions and dental implants and making sure that they've been to the dentist and they're really taking good care of their teeth. I also, a lot of my patients, my particularly well-educated patients, come to me with the concerns because they've heard it, they've seen it in the news, they're scared. And, you know, I think the incidence clearly is there, but at twice a year dosing, I think that incidence is very low, certainly in the trials where it's used at six-month intervals and in the reclass trials in osteoporosis the incidence is exceedingly low. So I do say there could be some added risk, but the likelihood is that it would be relatively low. And I think that's a key issue, especially when you're talking about an overall healthy population in the adjuvant setting. I think all the problems we've been having, obviously, are in the patients we treat with these drugs, mostly, I mean, metastatic patients. But when I'm seeing problems, I'm usually seeing patients who have been on drugs for a couple of years. And actually, there are some interesting data suggesting that the major risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw begins to occur once you exceed two or three years of use of these high-potency bisphosphonates. I think actually in the Austrian trial, they actually did not have a confirmed case of ONJ. I'm curious, Antonio, kind of looking over Steve's shoulder, looking at this situation, young woman with a young child coming in with a really bad-looking kind of cancer. What's your take on how, you mentioned a little bit about the husband, and what's your take on what's going on within the family at this point? It's so difficult to know. Steve actually did a beautiful job in describing the husband and predicting how he would function in the office. I mean, he is someone who does not establish eye contact, is a little bit jittery. I mean, even now, this is... A year and a half or so beyond, and he was still a little bit teary, wide-eyed, and she was in charge. I mean, she works in the healthcare business. She's not a healthcare professional, but she's on the business side of it. He has a managerial job at a store, but clearly she has been the decision maker, and it's one of those things that you never know whether his fear is he's afraid for her, which I'm sure he is. Also, the fact that he's afraid for the possibility that he may lose her and be left alone and having one small child. And so it does worry me in terms of the ability for this family to move on. And one may argue, one may say, wait a minute, this is a woman who has such a high-risk tumor and the likelihood of recurrence is so huge. On the other hand, she has done well. She responded well to treatment. She had a nice pathologic response, not a PCR, but a nice pathologic response. And it is possible that the trastuzumab intervention may have changed the natural history of her disease. And so I do worry about their ability and his ability to move on and to be able to definitely enjoy the time they have now and the ability to think about the future. And in fact, she's actually, they have, a, I believe they have a cruise yes, uh, they do, yeah. being planned to Alaska in a couple of months. And so, and this is something I'm sure she organized and she's trying to take care of him. Actually, I think that's actually could be happening in that family. I think that is actually what is happening. Usually when I get her in the room alone to examine her, I ask her more how her husband is doing. I sense that she's in control. She knows exactly what's going on. She's been the driver right from the beginning, and she has to take care of herself and her husband. It's a very interesting dynamic. But right now we're focusing, clearly I have to say to her husband every time I see him, and he comes with her, by the way, for every visit, 
that she's doing great, nothing to worry about, everything is fine. And you asked him uh, whether he was yeah. uh, interested in a support group, or yeah. and he was a little bit dismissive of that. He was, and I actually thought, I wasn't sure if she wanted to be part of a support group, because we do have a very active support group, and one of the issues that comes up in the support groups really are spousal relationship, but neither the patient nor her husband at this point are interested in support groups.